Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about sable-eyed specters, perpetual problems, and fear-filled fortresses. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice talents Brendan McNair, Paul J. McSorley, and Erica Garafa. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight is written by Andrew Harmon 
and is voiced by Brendalyn McNair. In it, we'll meet a daycare worker that gets more than she bargained for when she meets two odd-looking children at the fence line of their property. Children with very unusual eyes just waiting for an invitation. <laughs> Without further ado, I present to you The Visitors. It wasn't quite deja vu. I just couldn't shake the feeling that I'd seen these kids before. I spotted them on the corner on my drive into work. There were two boys, maybe six and nine years old, loitering at the intersection. Perhaps they were panhandling, perhaps they were waiting to cross, but by the ragged conditions of their clothing and the smudges of dirt on their cheeks, I figured it was the former. It was heartbreaking to see kids that young in such unfortunate circumstances. I considered pulling over to offer what assistance I could, but I was already running late and I had to get to the daycare before the morning caretaker got flustered and called our boss to complain. I'm not often late, but this lady was a bit of a grouch. I shook the image of them out of my head, and by the time I pulled into the parking lot of the Clay City daycare, I was back to the old touchstones of worrying about bills, about errands, about the low tire light blinking on my dashboard. I clocked in, read the notes from the morning shift, and tied on my apron. I worked the after-school stretch of the daycare, so I would be watching over a litter of 12 rugrats until their parents picked them up sometime between 7 and 9 that night. I won't bore you with the backgrounds of all my kids, but there's a few that stood out from the group. There was Tanner, my fearless eight-year-old that was always the first to charge up the big kid slide. Sue, my shy girl, was off in a corner desk doodling with crayons. And, of course, there was Ronnie. Ronnie is, well, odd. I hate to say that about a helpless child, but fuck me if this kid isn't a little out there. Ronnie keeps to himself, mostly, hanging around the outskirts of the common room, sitting at the edge of the reading carpet, playing in the dirt far away from the other kids on the playground. He wasn't shy the way Sue was shy. If you talked to Ronnie, he had no issue rambling your ear off for hours if you let him. But Ronnie had lost both of his parents at a young age, and he had a lot of questions about death. Whenever his aunt would drop him off for the day... It was apparent how worn down she had grown. I imagined Ronnie was the same way at home, always staring off at the ceiling or silently mouthing a conversation to himself. He was hard to connect with in any real way. The afternoon whiled away as per the usual routine. Juice boxes and veggies were served at four. I led the group in a crafts project shortly after snack time, then turned them loose on the playground. I sat on a bench by the building and watched the children gallop and play as the sun slowly eased itself behind the distant tree line. I must have missed the point at which the two urchins from earlier arrived, but I nearly jumped out of my seat when I glimpsed them standing at the fence bordering the playground. They were watching the other children play, not wistfully, mind you. There was no sense of envy on their faces. No real curiosity that I could decipher. They were just... there. 
watching, staring with their big, black eyes. Their eyes made me shiver at first glance. It was impossible to discern where the pupil ended and the cornea started. And the black discs were so large that hardly any of the white sclera could be seen peeking out at the corners of their eyes. I stood and strolled over to the fence line to speak to them. Their skin was pale, and they looked malnourished. God, those eyes bored into me. As if they were taking in every second of my past like a movie rushing before them. I felt naked, exposed, vulnerable. As I approached, their little heads tilted back to adjust for the differences in our height. Their mouths hung agape. And for a moment, I swore I had seen secondary rows of teeth concealed behind the first. But when I shook off the shock, their lips were sealed. The three of us must have stared at one another in silence for several minutes before I asked if their parents were nearby. They didn't respond. I prodded further, inquiring about where they lived, what they were up to how they had gotten here from the intersection I had spied them at earlier in the day. The older of the two boys continued to gaze right through me, while the younger one's attention had been magnetized by something in the yard. I glanced back over my shoulder to see what interested him so much. There sat Ronnie in the sandbox, alone, jabbing the end of a stick over and over into the loosely packed soil. I don't know what convinced me to ask the question, but I know now that it was the worst decision I have ever made. I asked, Do you want to come in and play? No words of acceptance were uttered. The two of them simply meandered around the perimeter of the playground and stood waiting for me at the gate. I unlatched it and ushered them into the yard. I muttered something about making themselves at home, and the two boys made a beeline for Ronnie. For the rest of our time outside, the trio of them sat in a circle in the sandbox, whispering amongst themselves. I was too far away to tell what was being discussed, but the look on Ronnie's face made it clear that he had found someone he could connect with. I was filled with the sense of pride I hadn't felt in a long time. Maybe it was that misplaced joy that caused me to miss the cues from the other children. When the whole group was wrangled back indoors, I could soon tell that all of the children besides Ronnie were uncomfortable. Whenever those two new boys, yet unnamed, looked at them with their abysmally black eyes, the other kids would yelp and retreat to the safety of myself. I assured them that the two strangers were of no harm. In the back of my mind, I couldn't say that I was sure of that myself. Uneasiness hung in the air like a sort of static. The subtle electricity laced in the ozone before a storm. Tension crackled in my lungs. An implacable dread tingled along my nerves. Through nap time, next to no one slept. 
Most of the children lay stiff as boards on their sleeping mats, with their eyes wide and glued to the ceiling. The few who managed to sleep twitched and squirmed with nightmares. One sleepily mumbled about demons. What did a six-year-old have to fear from religious boogeymen? There was one exception, and you can guess who it was. Ronnie dozed with a peaceful smile carved across his lips. Flanking him on either side lay the two strangers, who had no sleeping mats of their own to lie on, and instead lay prostrate, their white noses pressed against the tile. It could not have been comfortable. Just before nap time ended, I headed for the small kitchen to fetch the rolling rack where the children's bagged suppers sat. Most of the kids were dropped off with a pre-packed meal from their parents. But for those who didn't, we provided a simple meal of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, carrot sticks, cookie, and cartons of milk. I grabbed two of these pre-made meals for our strange new guests and added them to the rack. As I was checking everything against the list of names on the refrigerator, I heard a crash. Not a loud one, mind you. Just a small, quick shatter. Worried that one of the children might have broken something and that there would be sharp shards to cut themselves on, I hurried out of the kitchen to check. I found the answer almost immediately. A plaster crucifix that hung above the archway in the hall had fallen off its nail and busted on the tile floor. I carefully picked up the three busted pieces of the cross and tossed it into the garbage back in the kitchen. It didn't occur to me then to question why it had fallen. Maybe, if I had taken the time to examine the pieces, I would have noticed the dirty fingerprints that I would later find around their edges. When I passed out the food and managed to get 14 of the children to stay put at their tables, I watched as tiny fingers prodded and played with their food, and not much of anything was actually eaten. Appetites were low. The children sat looking bothered about something distracted. The odd, nameless boys didn't eat a bite. They sat, staring at me. Christ! The black holes of their eyes seemed to suck in every ounce of security I felt. The longer I stared into those endlessly dark eyes, the tighter the knot in my gut wound itself. It felt as if any moment the world would come to an abrupt and tragic finish. I snapped myself out of baleful dreams just before Sue burst out in tears. My motherly side swept me right out of my chair and around the tables to Sue's side. I knelt down to her level and clasped my hands on her shoulders. What's wrong, Sue? I don't know. She mumbled. A thin film of snot had already formed at the corner of her nose and threatened to drip down over her upper lip. I... I just want to go home. Everything is fine, honey, I assured her. I swiped her bangs off her forehead. Your mommy's coming to pick you up in a couple hours, okay? I want her now, Sue protested. It will be time for you to go home before you know it. I promise. 
I smiled. Can you make it just two more hours? I pointed toward the clock in the corner. When the little hand is on the eight and the big hand is on the twelve, see? Sue nodded and sniffled. She pouted out her lower lip and sawed her sleeve across her nose and glanced nervously to her left. I glimpsed over at what she was eyeing. The black-eyed children were staring at us intensely. Their eyes were tilted forward, leering at us like a pair of hyenas circling their prey. Goosebumps shot all across my flesh. I had to be rid of them. Suddenly, it all began to click. Why the children couldn't nap, why no one was eating, why every minute of the day had been suspended in this crystalline stasis of anxiety and ferment. These two strangers had fomented a fog of turbulence that was choking the once peaceful environment of an otherwise quaint daycare. Surveying the tiny faces around me, I read nothing but helplessness and concern. Even Tanner... The once fearless bastion of young boldness had hardly said a word throughout most of the afternoon. Melissa? A small voice mused behind me. I turned around and there stood the older of the two black-eyed boys glaring up at me. Panic flushed down my throat, leaving the length of it dry and raw and itchy. How had he known my name? At no point did I tell any of the children my first name. The members of the daycare staff were always instructed to refer to themselves as Miss So-On or Mrs. What-Have-You. I doubted that even my fellow co-workers could remember my first name. How on earth did this child, this stranger, this... Hell, I'll say it, this little monster, know to call me Melissa... The urge to nurture and protect vanished. Fight-or-flight responses flooded through me, and I found myself charging straight out of the room back to the kitchen. My tongue swirled around my dry mouth. Breathing became a task, my ragged breath hissing in and out of my lips. I leaned on the counter heavily and tried to collect myself. I peeled open one of the tiny cardboard cartons of milk and drained it in seconds. I dug my fingertips into my temples and rubbed slow, tight circles into the taut nerves. When I closed my eyes, I could see their faces. Their dirty, emotionless faces. And their eyes. Pure black. Hellish black. Shades of the void burned into my eyelids. No matter where my mind tried to hide, they found me. I imagined the comfort of my bed, only to find the two children staring in through my window. I pictured the vacation in Puerto Vallarta, the sun hanging over clear blue seas and coconut fronds waving in the wind. But far away... Down the strand stood two silhouettes of pure black, and I could feel their eyes drilling into my skull. I dove deep, deep back into my memory, to my childhood, 
my mother standing over my little daybed that I slept in until I was a teenager. The duvet was clean ivory with gray, pencil-thin embroidery along the seams and ebony circles dotted all along its surface. But in my memory, they were no longer innocent polka dots. They were eyes. An endless field of them. They watched ten-year-old me as I slept, spied on me as I played with dolls and tiny tea sets. Miss Davis! Miss Davis! A little girl's voice cried out from the common room. I remembered my responsibilities and reluctantly returned to the children. When I returned, the group seemed to have lightened up a bit and had used my absence as an opportunity to break out all of the toys and crayons and storybooks that they could find. I breathed a sigh of relief. The children were scurrying all about, seemingly released from the spell of dread that had earlier bound them. I collapsed in the rocking chair in the reading corner and held my head in my hands. So relieved was I by the bustling laughter of children. I didn't think to stop and take a head count. If I had, I would have realized two things. The black-eyed strangers who had haunted us were no longer present, and neither was Ronnie. In fact, that oversight eluded me up until the point where Ronnie's disheveled aunt came knocking on the glass double doors of the daycare, all bundled in an oversized canvas coat with her hair pinned up in a mess of a bun. I smiled and greeted her, asked her how her day was. I led her into the common room, where the last half-dozen children were milling about in a half-asleep daze. The daycare always grew calmer as the end of the night approached. "'Was Ronnie any trouble today?' she asked. I shook my head and smiled. "'No, no, no trouble at all.' In fact, he made some new friends today. Really? That put her a little off guard. Not that a child making friends was outlandish, but it was unprecedented for Ronnie since the tragedy that took his parents. Where is he? Oh, he's around here somewhere, I said. I put my hands on my hips and turned all around, searching the common room for him. After a few seconds passed, I scratched my head. I... I don't see him. I'm sure he's just snuck off down the hall. I'll find him. I had never lost track of a child before, and I wasn't worried that I had then. I assumed Ronnie had wandered off to the bathroom or the kitchen when I wasn't looking. I went from room to room, flicking on the lights to find him. But with each room I found empty, a knot of worry thickened in my esophagus. Trying to hide my panic, I traipsed right past Ronnie's aunt without paying any heed to her questioning gaze and went out into the playground. It was dark outside, and only a single yellow street lamp cast its dim light over the playground. The shadows of swing sets and corkscrew slides leaned toward me. I rifled through every dark corner behind every bush. I even peered up at the roof. Not a single sign of Ronnie could be found. 
panic. Sheer, unchecked terror surged through each inch of my nervous system. My muscles became taut. My bones felt as if they were lead. The erratic beating of my heart raced and raced until it felt like a herd of elephants was stampeding through my chest. What's going on? Ronnie's aunt had poked her head out the door. I can't find him, I stammered. You what, dear? She asked. I can't find Ronnie, I said. I stomped my feet on the soft rubber ground of the playground. I don't know where he is. He was just here. He... I curled my fingers and tugged on my lower lip. He was here just minutes ago. You've lost my Ronnie? His aunt cried. What? 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 What, what do you mean you've lost him? It felt like the ground dropped out from beneath me, like I was standing over an abyss, a black, endlessly deep abyss. The image of the two dirty, black-eyed children flashed before me. My knees buckled, and I squatted like a helpless little girl in the middle of the playground. Police. I had to call the police. There would be a search. The news would come. The daycare would be shut down. I'd be fired. I'd never get another job again. I'd be ostracized from the whole community. And here I was thinking about myself when some poor little boy was who knows where. Where is my Ronnie? His aunt demanded. I don't know. I mumbled out. Miss Davis? Sue's tiny voice cooed. Not now, Sue, I said. My parents are outside. You have to let them in. No. What horrific timing. Ronnie's aunt was winding up like a bomb ready to burst, and the explosion would take place right in front of Sue's parents. I nodded and stood up straight. The realization that there was no escaping this punched me straight away in the gut. I could have vomited. I had to fight it back as I marched inside, right across the common room, and turned the lock. Ronnie's aunt was right at my heels. Her eyes were wild. They were becoming puffy and red. Sue's parents stepped inside and immediately gathered that something was wrong. Where is Ronnie? I demand an answer right now, young woman, she cried. What's going on? Sue's mom asked. This woman lost my child! What? My Ronnie! She doesn't know where he is! She won't answer me! I stood, near catatonic, my gaze shifting back and forth between Ronnie's aunt and Sue's mother and father. Everything sort of blurred after that. Questions, demands, screaming, panic, tears, pacing back and forth. Soon after, 
the flashing red and blues of squad cars jammed into the parking lot. Ronnie's aunt was inconsolable. Words fled me completely in the steely gaze of the detectives as they barraged me with question after accusing question. The director of the daycare came stumbling in in her pajamas, her eyes red with a mixture of anger, concern, and worry. Each time I locked eyes with my boss, I could feel her disappointment in me oozing out of every pore. I was suffocated with guilt. Search teams were formed. Pictures were provided. News vans formed a chattering circus up and down the block. My boss, cursing at the fact that she hadn't dressed more appropriately, stood in front of the cameras, spouting out whatever hopeful encouragement she could think of. Ronnie's aunt sat in the corner, bundled in a police blanket, rocking back and forth with her frail arms hugged tight around her. Barking dogs combed through the surrounding fields and neighborhoods. I watched as their handlers led them out toward the silhouetted trees in the distance, and all the while I couldn't shake them from my mind. The eyes. The menacing black eyes. Like gateways to hell. They were hollow doorways into nothingness. When I blinked, there they were, darker even than my blindness. Several times I could swear I caught a glimpse of those pale faces pressed against the windows outside. But when I looked again, they were gone. Ronnie was never found. Stories circulated through the small town gossip circuit. I became the shame of Clay City. The dirty secret behind a missing child. I was the irresponsible, deadbeat caretaker behind the Amber Alert. I lost my job. I lost all respect. I was labeled untrustworthy and careless. That was all five years ago. Since then, I've moved to another city far, far away from my sordid past. A metropolis on the eastern seaboard where the anonymity of city life let me blend in with the innocence. But every day, I felt the unbearable shame of my mistakes pressing down on me. After a while, I sought out a therapist. My efforts there yielded little result. It was after one of these sessions, standing on the bustling sidewalk downtown that the last scene of my story takes place. It was just afternoon. Businessmen were swarming this way and that way, marching between their offices and the little lunch spots that dotted the boulevard. Traffic was heavy, and I was at an intersection waiting to cross. Between passing bodies, I spotted a trio of small forms rifling through the trash cans outside of a cafe. Three pale boys were sorting through half-eaten sandwiches and crumpled napkins. Ronnie? I spat. There was no doubt in my mind. I had seen him. 
skinnier and dirtier and a little taller than I remembered, but there was no mistaking that face. I watched for a few seconds to confirm my suspicions. Sure enough, he stood chattering with the two boys that I remembered from so long ago. Their blank, demonic faces mouthed a conversation that I was too far away to understand. Then, Ronnie looked right at me. Every minute of that terrible night replayed itself like a horror movie in my skull. Ronnie's eyes had changed. His once dull blue gaze had grown deeper, darker, and larger. Pure black eyes. Black as a moonless night sky stared straight into mine. My heart thrummed. Paying no heed to the world around me, I took a step into the busy street. A cacophony of honking horns and squealing brakes resounded down the street. A strong hand caught me by the upper arm and ripped me backwards, nearly yanking me off my feet. Just as it happened, a speeding bus barreled past me. It missed me by inches. I gasped. Twisting my head around, a tall man in a charcoal suit stares down at me. Are you trying to get yourself killed, lady? He asked. No, no, you don't understand. I. The words came jumbled from my mouth. I turned and looked back across the street. The alley was empty. The trash cans were undisturbed. The three boys had vanished. That was the last time I saw Ronnie or the two other black-eyed children that had carried him away from the Clay City daycare. It was one last mocking reminder that I would never be okay that I would never escape my past. At night, I lay in bed staring at the ceiling. Sometimes, I swear I hear footsteps down the hall. Some nights, I wake up to pale faces pressed against the glass just outside my bedroom window. And I see them the eyes darker even than the night sky behind them and I sit sobbing until dawn wherever you are whatever you are now Ronnie I'm sorry I let them in Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Visitors as written by Andrew Harmon and performed by Brendalyn McNair. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, written by author Jeff Sturtevant, and it's voiced by Paul J. McSorley. In it, we'll meet a gentleman who just can't seem to stay out of trouble. No matter where he goes or what he does, it always seems to find him. What will become of our unlucky protagonist and his attraction to calamity? Stay tuned and find out. Without further ado, I present to you Shit Magnet. They've called me a shit magnet since I was a kid. It's only an expression, sure, but I think it might also be a real thing. If a smile can attract smiles, as sure as a corpse can attract flies, there's no reason a guy like me can't attract trouble just by virtue of being me. When they first called me a shit magnet so long ago, I guess I felt a little insulted. In retrospect, though, I really don't see it as an insult. I think what they were trying to say was, it's not really my fault. That's what I thought the night I heard the shots. Woke me up out of a dead sleep. In my dreams, we were kids again setting off those pirate crackers in the 50-gallon drums at the construction site. Blam, blam, blam! But before I knew it, my eyes were wide open, and I'd been transported back to the motel room. And the shots kept coming. Blam, blam, blam! And there was a shout. A scream more like it. And then a car door slamming and tires spinning in the gravel. Then a big block engine warbling off into the distance. And then there was nothing. I lay in the lumpy motel bed with my eyes wide open. I didn't know what time it was. I hadn't even brought a watch along with me. I was on my way to pick up an old Mustang some guy had for sale, just like the one I used to drive as a kid. I only stopped in this remote shit town to spend the night. I was the one and only person in this dingy-ass motel. Even the guy manning the office had gone home. It was only me and whatever was going on out there. I lay there for a while, trying to process what I may or may not have heard. Finally, I sat up. Nah, those were no pirate crackers. I got out of bed and walked to the door, pulled the shade aside and looked out the window. It was pouring rain. Not much to see. I opened the door and looked across the parking lot. Fat raindrops smacked into the puddles like little explosions. Not one car in the parking lot besides mine. Could I have dreamed the whole thing up? Nah, <laughs> no way. I pulled my windbreaker on and walked outside. No sound but the rain. I walked about halfway across the parking lot before I saw it. A nondescript black sedan parked in the roadside opposite the motel. A barrage of raindrops sent steaming off the hood. I crossed the parking lot, then stood at the side of the pavement and looked up and down the road. Dead quiet. No one around. Probably not for miles. I went across the street and approached the black sedan. I walked around the car, looked in the windows, 
No one inside. There was a duffel bag in the back seat. Around back, I saw one tire flat, a twist of steam coming off the end of the tailpipe. There were holes in the rear fender, clean little holes, and I knew it hadn't been firecrackers that made all that noise. My heart sped up a bit. I looked up and down the road again, but it was still just me. Just me, the car, and the rain. Or was it? Hello? I waited for a minute, but there was no reply. There was a little clearing out beyond the brush on the side of the road. I forded the few bushes there and looked out into the weeds. It didn't take long before I saw what I was looking for. I walked over the crumpled heap in the clearing and nudged it with my foot. Hey! No response. I kneeled down and had a closer look. The man appeared Mexican or something like it. His eyes were half open, but there was no life in them. I turned him onto his back and saw the blossom of blood on his white undershirt. The guy had been shot. More than once by the look of it. Now, why'd they do that, buddy? I squatted there in the rain for a minute, just kind of acclimating myself to the situation. I looked back at the road. Still, no one had driven by. Then back at the man. I started patting down his clothes. In his front pocket, I found a wallet. Inside the wallet was $45. I folded the money and put it in my pocket. I thought of checking his ID, but I didn't suppose it made any difference who he was. I put the wallet on his chest. In his jacket, I found a small revolver, a 38 caliber with a snub-nosed barrel. It looked to have been hit by a bullet itself, maybe one of the bullets that killed him. I didn't know if it would fire right, so I left it where I'd found it. I stood up and turned back to the road. A gale of wind sent the rain sideways. I walked back to the car and looked up and down the road to make sure no one was coming. I opened the side door and slid in next to the canvas bag. The car smelled strongly of marijuana. I unzipped the bag and looked inside. There were two rifles, Bushmaster AR-15s. Looked brand new, worth at least seven, eight hundred apiece, almost half of what I meant to spend on that Mustang. Guess that's a bad idea. I said. Maybe I was talking to myself, maybe I was talking to my other self, but it was my other self who answered. Guess it's my lucky night, I said. Maybe I was right on both counts. In the end, I was walking back out into the rain with the duffel bag under my arm. I walked back to my car in the motel parking lot and unlocked the trunk and set the duffel bag inside. I covered it with some old clothes and towels and closed the lid. The rain was coming down harder now. I hurried back to my room and toweled off in the little bathroom. As soon as I had, though, something occurred to me. Well, shit. I went back out into the rain. I loped across the parking lot and back to the car. I reached under the dash and felt around for the trunk lever. I pulled it, watching the lid through the rear window. I went around back and opened it. Five more duffel bags, plastic carry cases, cases of ammo. The trunk was packed with guns. For a minute, all I could do was stand there looking at it. That weird feeling like you stepped in a puddle maybe a little deeper than you thought it was. But by then, you were already in it, weren't you? Even if the water was seeping in over the tops of your shoes. In for a penny? I said to myself. I slung the duffels over my shoulder and stacked the five pistol cases on the lip of the trunk and fumbled the lid closed. I carried them back to my car and set the bags inside the trunk with the others. Then I arranged the pistol cases inside so they wouldn't shift around too much. 
My body was all full of adrenaline, same as it was when I went all in on a poker hand or bet my ass on a horse. I was about to close the lid and get ready to go, but my curiosity got the better of me. I flipped the latches on one of the heavier cases and peeked inside. Well, goddamn. I closed the case, took it and another two cases back into the room with me. I set them on the bed and opened them and just sat there enjoying the adrenaline thumping through my heart. I chuckled to myself, then reached in and lifted out the gold-plated Desert Eagle. I weighed it in my hand, ejected the magazine, popped it back in. I gripped it and looked down the sights. I pulled back the slide and looked down the barrel. Almost wide enough to fuck. There it was on the slide. 0.50 AE. And how much does this thing bring in at the five and nine? There were five of them. Two gold, three nickel, all in 50 caliber. 2,000 for the gold plated, a little less for the nickel. No telling where they had been lifted from, but come inventory time, someone was going to have a heart attack. Maybe a 50 caliber embolism. I packed the guns and the rest of my stuff in the car and dropped the key in the return box. I started the car and pulled out of the parking lot, my headlights panning the crime scene from right to left. I was about to take off, but I stopped there a moment. In for a pound, I said. I pulled in next to the shot-up car and parked. Checked the rearview mirror. Pulled the trunk lever. I got out and opened the trunks of both cars. I lifted cases of 5.56 and 50 caliber ammunition from the trunk of the sedan and switched them to mine. When I was done, I could swear the ass of the old Toyota was hanging an inch lower. I closed both trunks and got back behind the wheel, wiped the rain from my eyes, and checked the mirrors again. There was no one out here but me and Chico. Not a single passerby since the whole thing went down. In any case, though, I was done pushing my luck. The radio said it was 3 a.m. Felt about right. And I drove down the road with around $15,000 worth of guns and ammo in the trunk, the moon following me through the leafless trees like a knowing watchful eye. Would I have done anything different if the motel man asked for ID or if I'd paid with a card or left any other evidence of my presence behind? Probably not. It was just luck that I hadn't. I finished the night behind an abandoned gas station in the corner of town. When I opened my eyes, the whole thing felt just like another of my crazy dreams. But this was no dream. Everyone gets a lucky night once in a while, even a guy like me. I got out of the car, stretched, check my surroundings. The morning sun burning off the last of the rain. The perfumed country air. I felt like the last man on earth. I reached in and popped the trunk. There in the light of the morning were the damp canvas bags, pistol cases, and ammo. I flipped the latches on a case and looked in at the gold-plated eagle. I'd keep this one, I decided. The rest I'd sell off, but this one was mine. I opened one of the ammo cases and took out a box of 50s. I slid out a magazine and started thumbing in the obscenely big cartridges. It might have fit seven, but I got in five and decided to leave it at that. I slid the mag back in, gripped it, sighted down the barrel, held it at my side, felt the weight in my hand. I looked out into the wooded area behind the station. Damn, did I want to shoot it. The very idea made my senses tingle. But I had better sense than that. 
I brought the gun up front with me, set it lovingly on the passenger seat. I looked at it a last time and pulled away. The radio said it was 9 a.m. I stopped at a diner on the way out of town and ordered a big breakfast. I sat there eating eggs and bacon and thinking about money. Thought about what I'd do with all of it once I got my hands on it. Maybe hit the track. Maybe an all-nighter at the blackjack table. Hell, I might even win this time. It sure felt like I was starting a lucky streak. And if I didn't, it was free money to begin with. All this, of course, was predicated on finding some troublemaker willing to pick up what I was putting down. Maybe some shit magnet himself. I paid for breakfast with one of Chico's 20s and let the waitress keep the change. Thanks, Chico. I pulled into the long gravel driveway at 2 p.m. I saw the Mustang sitting in the driveway, looking just like it did in the pictures. An old 5.0, 4.10 gears, upgraded wheels. Old Stanley had decided to drive something more practical, he explained. Most people got practical as they got older. The word itself was a common refrain among guys my age. But I didn't like it. The way I see things, there's nothing graceful about aging gracefully. A barking dog announced my arrival and Stanley came out on the porch. I put the Desert Eagle in the glove box and flipped it shut. I parked the car and got out to meet him. We shook hands. Thanks for coming out all this way. So, here's your Toyota, eh? Just got a few things in it I have to move, then it's all yours. You gonna junk it? Fix it up? I'm undecided, he said. Might could spruce her up a bit. Got no parts for her, but I could patch the rust and maybe paint it. These Toyotas run forever. Real practical vehicles. We'll see. I nodded. I didn't care what he did with it, as long as the plates were off of it and it was no longer traceable to me. I'd take the long way out of town with my new acquisitions and drive the speed limit all the way back home. No doubt they had found Chico by now, but there was nothing linking any of that to me. All I was guilty of was a little finder's keepers. I made sure my car was locked up and we took the Mustang for a spin. Pleased, I pulled in next to my old Toyota and parked. The agreed-upon price was 3 k and the Toyota. It was a fair and reasonable price, and I was ready to pay it. But first, I studied the guy's face. Maybe Stanley would be interested in an alternative form of payment. So, what are you thinking? Like the car? I do. I was just wondering if maybe you'd be interested in something other than cash. Other than cash? An odd look came over his face. If there was a tactful way to suggest what I had in mind, I couldn't decide what it was. I figured I might as well just come out with it. Got some brand new Bushmaster ARs, worth maybe 800 apiece. I'd take 500 if you're interested. He lifted a hand. Nah, no can do, he said. I need the cash. I cleared my throat. How about 350? That's the absolute lowest I can... Cash only. Sorry if you had any ideas willing to trade it out, but I'm not. The best I could do was knock off $500 for the Toyota, but that's it. You still want it? I pretended to reconsider for a moment, but I went ahead and shook his hand. If I had ever intended to back out of the deal, that option went out the window the minute I found those guns. There was no way I was driving out of here in the same car I arrived in. The money changed hands and that was that. Or it should have been anyway, but 
Stanley wasn't too keen on social cues. He seemed intent on standing right there with me until the moment I left. Probably meant to wave bye-bye and everything. Which meant there was no way to discreetly move the arsenal from the Toyota to the Mustang. Discreet was plan A. Plan B would have to be nonchalance. So I went ahead and popped the trunk. Yeah, I'll tell you, when it rains around here, it sure does rain. I know we need it, but... With the pause in his sentence, I knew old Stanley had spotted the contents of my trunk. Yeah, sure, we need it, I said. He gestured toward the trunk. You a gun dealer or something, mister? Yes, sir. Hope I didn't alarm you. He was still looking in the trunk. No, no. Headed to a show or something? That's right. Where at? We made eye contact. Bethesda, I said. It was the first place that came to my mind. A gun show in Bethesda? I nodded. Figure I'll get there by tonight, check out the town, and the show's on Saturday. What's it called? He asked. We met eyes again. Bethesda Gun Show, I said. That must have satisfied him, because he appeared to relax. He went on pelting me with platitudes while I transferred the guns and ammo to the Mustang's trunk. When I was all loaded up, I closed the lid and returned to the glove box to retrieve my eagle. I stuck the gun under my waistband. It threatened to pull my pants down, but it was more appropriate than brandishing it. I thanked Stanley for the car and bid him good day. I backed out of the driveway and onto the main road, enjoying the throaty rumble of the engine. It was going to be a long ride back home. God knows it'd go a whole lot faster without the contraband in the trunk. I pulled into a gas station about 20 miles east. I got out of the car and stood back to admire my new ride. I'd had one just like it when I was a kid. A 19-year-old shit magnet with similar sensibilities. Crashed the thing into a dumpster one night. Totaled the car but walked away without a scratch. I don't remember how I got home. Don't even remember what happened to the car. All I know was that was the last time I drove one. Until now. Second chances. Everyone deserves one. I went into the store to pay with cash. The man at the register regarded me suspiciously, like most people seem to do. Must be something in my eyes, I guess. Can I help you? Twenty bucks on pump one, I said. The man took my twenty and rang me up. I looked down at the bulge in my pants, still toting the giant pistol like some obscene erection. Had to be the worst carry weapon I had ever worn, especially without a holster. But obscene is just how it felt, and it felt so good. That other part of me, the one I talked to sometimes, he wanted to pull it out and point it at the guy. I knew if I did, he'd be seeing the thing in his dreams. Go ahead, I said to myself. I could feel my heart rate increasing, same way it did when I was out looking for coke or shopping for hookers. I glanced up at the corners of the shop, but there were no cameras, just those anti-theft mirrors. I wondered how much cash was in the register. I looked at the cashier, pictured his buggy eyes bugging out even further while he stared down the half-inch wide barrel. I could even kill him if I wanted to. I was pretty close to entertaining that little voice in my head when the blue and red lights started flashing in the security mirrors. I looked out into the parking lot. A trooper had parked right behind my Mustang, and while I watched, 
another cop car pulled right in front of it. Furious, I looked at the cashier, but he seemed just as confused as I was. There were four cops. Three of them stayed back, circled the Mustang, peeked in the windows. The fourth was approaching the store. Stanley, good old Stanley, took my money and called the goddamn cops. Probably reported the Mustang stolen. Told him I'd robbed him at gunpoint. I can't say I knew exactly what I was supposed to do at that moment, but in all my confusion, a few things were pretty clear. The cops knew about the guns in my trunk, and I wasn't going to be able to explain that away. Not only were the guns themselves enough to fuck me, but I'd inevitably be linked to the whole murder thing that happened to Chico out by the motel. And my brand new gold-plated Desert Eagle was as good as gone, without even the chance to shoot it. Somehow that seemed the most tragic part of all. One way or another, that gun was coming out of my waistband. Only question was, would it be the cops taking it out, or would it be me? Are you in some kind of trouble, mister? The cashier asked. I looked at the guy, this boring good boy cashier working at his local gas station for minimum wage. Probably never rocked the boat in his life. Probably never had any excitement. Maybe never had any fun at all. I was born in trouble, I said. I pulled the Desert Eagle out of my waistband and racked around. I leveled it at the approaching police officer. A flood of adrenaline coursed through my body, making my ears ring and my head swim. That's a bad idea, buddy. I glanced at the cashier. Funny thing, I couldn't tell if he had said that to me or I'd said it to myself. As usual, though, it was my other self who answered. Not with words, but a pull of the trigger. The blast was such that I nearly lost hold of the gun, but I didn't. On top of that, the ensuing slug might have been the luckiest shot of my life. The concussion liked to have disintegrated the window before the bullet even got there, beyond which the policeman's head just plain disappeared. One moment it was there, the next it simply wasn't. And he was still walking. Two or three steps, almost like he didn't realize his head was missing. Then he dropped, out by the pumps, sheer pandemonium. But I heard nothing. The cashier was gone. I aimed at the trooper's car and fired three shots. Two went wild, but one hit the car behind the Stang and blew out all four windows. I ducked behind a magazine rack and waited. It was quiet for a minute, but then a barrel peeked over the hood and returned fire. Something punched into my shoulder, but I was pretty sure it was just the magazine rack getting hit. I waited for a break in the shots, then slid out behind the rack and fired toward the hood. I don't know if I hit him or not. I advanced, ducked behind a closer shelf. Shots came, careened off the bricks, shattered glass drink coolers in back of the store. I waited, popped up, leveled the gun, and pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. The slide was locked back. Empty already. Now I know what you're thinking. I'd loaded the thing myself. I should have been well aware there were only five shots in it. But the truth is, I've never paid much attention to anything. Not when I was a kid playing with firecrackers. Not when I was a teenager driving drunk. And certainly not now, doing whatever the hell I was doing. Whatever I do, I just do it. And whatever happens, that's just what happens. When it all comes down to it, I don't have much of a say in anything. It happens to me. 
I haven't made a conscious choice in my whole goddamn life. My lucky day, I said. That's when the shot hit me. Felt like a car crashing into my back. The desert eagle flew out of my hand as I hit the floor. My last conscious thought lamenting the beautiful gold finish as it skittered across the tiles. I had taken a load of birdshot to the back, compliments of the friendly cashier, and a 38 to the shoulder by one of my cop friends. The surgeon plucked out every last one, though, and was told I would make a full recovery. My guns, of course, were gone, and so was my Mustang, but at least I had held on to my life. I did a pretty bang-up job defending myself in court, I thought, even if the judge and jury didn't see things my way. Maybe after I get out of prison, I can become a defense lawyer or something. Of course, I'm never supposed to get out of here, but no one knows better than me. An object in motion tends to stay in motion. And a shit magnet is always in motion because even though I'm locked up, I know the shit is still coming my way. And when it does, I know something is going to happen. I'll tell you the first thing I plan to do when I get out, though. First thing I'm going to do is find another Mustang. An even better one than the one I bought off that rat Stanley. Maybe I'll even get one of those new style ones. I don't know how I'm going to get it, but I'm sure I'll come up with something when the time comes. And by that time, I'm pretty sure I'll know what I'm going to do next. I've always lived like that, one step at a time. In fact, if you asked me my secret to living a good life, that's probably the advice I'd give you. Just put one foot ahead of the other. One foot in front of the other and eventually, you'll get to where you're going. Whatever happens along the way, well... You can hardly be responsible for that. I hope you enjoyed Shit Magnet, as written by Jeff Sturtevant and performed by Paul J. McSorley. Up next, we've one final round of fearsome fiction for you, written by author Mallory Eady and voiced by Erica Garafa. In it, a young woman and her siblings do what many of us did in their youth. They built an impenetrable fortress in their home, out of boxes. But when they discover that their do-it-yourself domicile isn't as secure as they had hoped, she may never look at her childhood the same way again. Without further ado, I present to you, Box Fort. All right, we all remember those cardboard castles of our youth. The ones that were better than any Fisher-Price playhouse, precisely because they had been painstakingly cut out, taped together, and decorated with our own hands. And unlike the fancy plastic cottages your parents spent a fortune on, these ones could be altered and added onto endlessly, with a little creativity on your part, and a few cardboard boxes your neighbors were just going to throw out. If you were the kid lucky enough to fall into possession of a refrigerator box, your coolness status was set. At least for a few weeks anyway. Feeling nostalgic yet? Good. You're in the same frame of mind I was before my happy childhood memories of cardboard and duct tape were forever marred. So, my story. 
Three years ago, my parents decided we were going to move. My sisters and I took this with a grain of salt because my parents are notoriously disorganized and none of their plans come to fruition without some serious delays. But sure enough, they soon began the renovations the house needed in order to sell. I was working at a fairly well-known clothing store at the time, and it was common for us to receive 15 to 30 boxes of stock every weekday. They were big boxes, which, after being emptied, just ended up in the dumpster. I took some home and started stockpiling them in the basement, figuring they might be useful in case my parents were in earnest about this moving thing. One night after my sister had picked me up from work, we were carrying down a few of the flattened boxes to the basement, and I started thinking about the really awesome box tunnel my cousins made when we were little. It stretched all through their basement with lots of nooks and crannies, and we were allowed to paint it however we liked. Naturally, we were occupied for months playing with this thing. Remembering this, I looked at our growing pile of boxes and then at my sister and voiced an idea I'm sure we were both considering. Casey, I said, we could make a really kick-ass box fort out of these. Now, before you start wondering about the mental capacity of my sisters and I, considering that we were able to amuse ourselves with a box fort, let me tell you, it started out mostly as a joke. Uh, wouldn't it be hilariously ridiculous if we did this sort of thing? But yeah, we ended up getting really into it. We're a pretty creative family, so it was mainly the building of it that was fun. It's not like we spent hours in there playing house or anything. We built it upstairs, our first eight boxes serving as a tunnel between my two sisters' rooms, Taylor and Casey, with a little doorway into the bathroom and another tunnel branching off towards my room. We got out the sharpies and vandalized it to our heart's content. We put up funny pictures inside. Casey even hung some Christmas lights, which gave a nice effect. Any four-year-old would be proud to call this box fort his own. I brought home more boxes. We elongated the tunnels, getting fancier and adding curves at the end so that, when inside, you could never see an entrance unless you crawled through to the very end. We even covered the whole thing with blankets to make it prettier, and to keep out the light from all the little gaps and crevices throughout. Our dog, Juliet, was timid at first, but joined the box fort club as soon as the three of us crawled inside to read ghost stories, because she didn't want to be left out. It was really dark in there. We usually brought in flashlights, and pretty much any time we crawled through there we were prone to fits of giggles mostly because we were three fully grown girls crawling through a box fort. I mention this only to show that, despite the total darkness and claustrophobic size of it, there was none of that palpable atmosphere of terror, foreboding, and ill will that often accompanies creepy places. At that point, it was still perfectly commonplace and funny, though you'd be hard-pressed to get one of us to crawl through it to get to the bathroom at night when the house was quiet and everyone asleep. My parents were understandably annoyed at the massive obstruction in their hallway which they had to hop over to get to their room, the linen closet, and our bathroom, but they are generally very accepting of our antics and only threatened to dismantle it once or twice. Nonetheless, we decided that we were unsatisfied with our box fort because we wanted to make an epic box fort. However, having already taken up the space in our bedrooms, 
The only place left to extend was across the hall to my parents' bedroom, something they would never agree to while living in the house. Luckily, they were going to be leaving for a week. That's when we filled all the free floor space in their bedroom and closet with box fort. And that's when the weird stuff started to happen. It was a progressive thing. We'd be in there hanging up goofy pictures or whatever, and then we'd hear a shuffling noise down one of the many branching tunnels. We assumed it was Juliet trying to find us, but after calling her name and searching for her, it would turn out she'd been lying in the sunny patch on the couch for who knew how long. One time, Casey and I were in there, hanging up paper bats we cut out, and we heard the shuffling from far off. Juliet! Julietta! I called. It's not. What are you talking about? I said, confused, because her face looked scared all of a sudden. It's not Julie. Taylor just took her for a walk. They're both gone. I stared at her a moment, remembered Taylor shouting something about walking the dog not too long ago, and then we both scrambled to the nearest exit. Once outside the fort, we immediately lapsed into fits of giggles, feeling ridiculous now that we were safe. Do you think it's mice or something? Casey asked, crinkling her nose. I said I didn't think so. The store was pretty clean and the house never had mice. But there had to be another explanation. The noise came from the portion that stretched into my parents' closet, a big walk-in with a window to the backyard. The window's open in there. I bet it was just the breeze rustling the boxes. A perfectly logical explanation which we were both happy to believe. That night, while I was in bed, I found my gaze drawn towards the entrance of the fort time and time again. It was really dark in there, and something about having that gaping black tunnel in my room made me feel very vulnerable. Eventually, I turned over and slept the other way, but I made a mental note to cover it up with a sheet the next day. On day two of No Parents, I had used the grocery money to buy ingredients for a cookie-decorating extravaganza, so I was in the kitchen baking those with Casey. We had a movie on at the same time, so it was a bit loud in there, and we didn't hear Taylor until she was standing in the doorway yelling at us. If I remember correctly, the conversation went something like this. What the hell, Casey? What do you want? Case and I gave each other quizzical looks, and Taylor looked at us like we were stupid. Are you serious? You make me come all the way down here and you don't even want anything? Tay, we didn't call you. Casey did. I was on the laptop in my room and she told me to come in the box fort with her. No, I didn't. I've been here making cookies with Muse the whole time. Oh, whatever, Casey. You totally did. I heard you. And then when I went in, you left and came down here. At this point, seeing one sister was pissed and the other confused, I jumped in and got the whole story from Taylor. Apparently, she was in her room when she heard Casey calling her name from inside the box fort. She asked her what she wanted and Casey insisted she come in the box fort, so exasperated, she finally did. She couldn't see Casey inside though, and a moment later she heard her laughing with me down in the kitchen, where she had always been. Needless to say, the atmosphere in the room instantly went from warm and comfortable to super creeped out, and I felt the need to step up as big sister to lay their fears to rest. We went through the you're lying bit for a while, 
but once both parties were satisfied the other was telling the truth, it was time to do some investigating. Grabbing a kitchen knife more for courage than for any real fear for my life, I volunteered to check out the box fort while they waited outside and kept an eye on me. I am a logical, reasonable person. I greet the supernatural and paranormal with, I think, a healthy degree of skepticism. I am open to the possibility of anything, ghosts, vampires, mermaids, whatever. But I will not believe it until I have solid scientific evidence proving its existence. At the time, in my mind, that had not been produced, which is why I had little trepidation in investigating the fort after that incident. If it happened to be an intruder, well, what could they do to me in a cramped little box fort with my sisters right there? Besides, someone had to do it. With these thoughts, I entered the box fort and found nothing. No ghosties, ghoulies, or homeless wanderers, and no one in the house either. Somehow I managed to convince Taylor that she'd heard the loud TV downstairs mixed with me and Casey's voices, and we all settled down to eat cookies and watch movies together, comfortably mollified. Maybe it was an after-effect of the incident during the day, but that night, Casey and Tay both had trouble sleeping. In fact, I woke up in the middle of the night to Casey's scared voice calling, Muse! Muse! I'm sure parents with small children probably get used to this, but when I woke up to that, I was instantly terrified. I jumped out of bed, grabbed my knife, and ran to her room. For those of you weirded out by the fact that I keep a knife in my bedside table drawer, keep in mind that I'm a fairly petite woman with next to no chance of defending myself against an intruder without a weapon of some sort. Anyway, Casey's room was dark. And when I flipped on her light switch, she was sitting up in bed, her eyes wide open, looking like she was going to cry. Seeing nothing amiss, I demanded to know what was wrong. By this time, Tay had wandered into the room with Juliet in her arms. Casey told me that she had been sleeping when suddenly she woke up with the feeling that someone was in the room, watching her. She found herself staring at the entrance of the box fort. This chilled me a bit, having had a similar experience. But what she said next was even more strange. She kept her eyes on the entrance, willing herself to stop being creeped out, when suddenly the boxes started to shake like something inside was moving rapidly through them, away from her room. Apparently that's when she started calling my name, waking up Taylor as well. For the second time that day, I did a full search of the box fort and the entire house, finding nothing. I would have chalked it up to a dream, if it hadn't been for another strange occurrence the next day. Casey woke up an hour late for work because her alarm didn't go off. Her alarm didn't go off because her cell phone was missing, which she claimed she had placed beside her pillow before she went to sleep. Taylor and I made an effort to help her find it before she left, checking her bed and floor and calling it from the home phone but neither of us was surprised or too concerned about it because she was notorious for misplacing things. When Case came home that evening, I asked if it had been there when she woke up in the middle of the night, and she couldn't remember seeing it. But she had been texting her friend in bed and made sure to set the alarm and put it beside her. In the end, we decided there was nothing to do but wait for it to show up. At around three in the morning, I was woken yet again by some sort of commotion outside my room. Again, I grabbed my knife and was alarmed by the noise, but mostly what I felt was anger and annoyance. 
I'd had enough of all the drama and wanted to put an end to it. Juliet was in my parents' closet, barking her head off at the box fort, and Casey and Taylor were already up wondering, like me, what was going on. Taylor picked up the dog and carried her out of the room, and she instantly shut up, leaving Casey and I standing in the closet with bewildered looks on our faces. It was silent for a moment, and then suddenly, Katy Perry's hot and cold song rang out loud and clear, making us jump. What the fuck? I said, still trying to get my half-asleep head around this. Normally, my sisters make fun of me when I swear. Apparently, I don't do it right, but this time they seem to find it appropriate. That's my ringtone, said Casey, looking at me strangely, but making no move to get her phone. Well, answer it, I said, exasperated. Casey lifted the blanket that covered the opening of the box fort, and there was her missing cell phone lying in the center of the first box, still blaring that song from an inadequate speaker. She flipped it open and put it to her ear. Hello? I waited for a moment, and then asked, Well, who is it? Casey made a noise of disgust and closed the phone. It's nothing. It was just our voices echoing in the background. They must have hung up. She folded her arms. Did you do this? Why the hell would I steal your phone and wake us all up at three in the morning? I asked incredulously. And Casey turned to Taylor next. I didn't touch your phone, she said, with a note of fear in her face. Are you guys joking? This isn't funny, Casey said, agitated. You're scaring me. At this point, I could see the situation was turning from weird to can't sleep anymore scary. So I sighed and said I would check the whole house over again, and proposed that Juliet had used the phone as a chew toy and left it in the box for it. It was the only thing I could think of at the time, and though it seemed to reassure my sisters, it really wasn't that plausible. Juliet was missing most of her teeth and the only things I'd ever seen her play with were soft plush toys, slippers, and dirty underwear. I know, ew. I doubted she'd ever want a cell phone in her mouth. There was nothing amiss about the house, and I made sure to double-check all the doors and windows this time, too. Everything was locked, and we were safe. This had just turned into one of those weeks where a lot of small occurrences were adding up to a big headache. Before I went to bed, I asked Casey if her phone had shown the caller ID for that call. No, it just said unknown. I don't get why we didn't hear it, though. It was so loud. I don't know, I shrugged. And change your ringtone. It was too late to figure things out. By day, everything seemed fine. The three of us hung out at the beach by our house, and we all felt pretty good afterwards laughing and joking about how freaked we all get at the slightest sign of oddness. Casey was going to a party that night, so it was just Tay and I at home. I got the sense that Tay was still feeling a little weird about the box fort, so I decided I'd do my best to make it fun again. I didn't want another late-night wake-up call. I grabbed a pile of old magazines, some scissors and glue, and suggested we make a collage in one of the inside walls. We had some upbeat music playing and were discussing an upcoming family trip when Tay suddenly leans over and turns the music down, as though she's listening to something. What? I asked. 
Did you put Juliet outside? She said, looking confused. No, she's probably downstairs. Why? I didn't put her out either, but I can hear barking. Well, maybe Case did before she left, I said cheerfully. Let's go check. For the record, I couldn't hear anything, but Taylor's always been more aware of Juliet than I am. When we checked the backyard, we couldn't find her, and we didn't hear any barking. I could tell Taylor was getting a bit anxious. She loves that dog. While I was starting to be frustrated, Juliet won't come when we call her, so we had to search the house yet again. We checked all her favorite hiding spots, but there was no sign of her, until we got upstairs and were hopping over the box fort to check closets and bedrooms. Taylor straightened up suddenly and shushed me. I hear her again, she said, making me pause so I too could listen. I don't hear anything, I said after a few moments. Can't you hear her barking? It sounds like she's far away. Are you sure it's not another dog? We didn't let her out. No, it's definitely her, she said, walking into my parents' closet to listen at the window. Come here, it's louder in here. She's gotta be outside. When I said once again that I couldn't hear anything, she rolled her eyes and replied, You're deaf then, and headed downstairs for her shoes. We searched for our dog for four hours that night, on foot and in a car, calling Casey home to help later on. My heart was in my throat the entire time, thinking we'd come across something awful at the side of the road, and wondering how I was going to console two girls who loved Juliet like a baby and had never had anything bad happen all their lives. There was also an unsettling feeling at the back of my mind to do with that far-off dog barking, but I pushed that away for the time being. The next day was spent in anxious endeavor, making posters and putting them up, canvassing the neighborhood. My poor sisters were close to tears, and I was wondering why this had to happen when my parents were gone. At the end of the night, they had settled into watching a movie half-heartedly while they waited for a call, and I went upstairs to discreetly call my mom and ask her to come home early. I didn't know what was going to happen with our dog, but I knew I needed some help consoling my sisters. When I finally went to bed, the house was quiet. My sisters had locked up the house, turned out the lights, and were sleeping, and I was bored with my book. I couldn't sleep, and like a few nights previous, I found I couldn't take my eyes off the entrance to the box fort. I had covered it up with a blanket as I'd intended to earlier, and while that seemed to help somewhat, I was still feeling weird about it. At some point, I chastised myself in my head. This is stupid, I'm going to sleep and prepared to roll over to the other side, when movement caught the corner of my eye. The blanket cover over the entrance had fluttered a bit, as though a breeze had blown through. This was odd, as all the windows had been closed when we turned on the air conditioning the previous day. I watched intently now, trying to determine in the dim light if the blanket was actually moving in and out as though someone were breathing under it or if this was just my imagination. My eyes weren't playing tricks on me. As I watched, something touched the blanket from inside with a single, slender finger and traced a vertical path all the way to the bottom. I'm not a particularly brave person, 
but something happens to you when you're in charge of the protection of others. Suddenly, scary things don't cripple you with fear because you know you have to be brave for the people you love. I did the only thing at this moment that my brain would allow me to do after reasoning with itself and coming to the most logical explanation. I turned on the light, quietly got out of bed, and softly called, Juliet? When my call received no answer, I made to step forward, and suddenly the boxes shook as though something were passing through them. I admit I jumped, and my heart started beating a mile a minute, but I also remembered we hadn't actually checked inside the box fort in all the commotion. Picking up the flashlight that lay on the floor near the entrance, I knelt down and lifted the cover, shining my light inside. There was nothing in the small tunnel leading out of my bedroom, but I couldn't see around the corners. Juliet, I called, trying to keep my voice down so as not to wake my sisters. Then again, Juliet, but in that stern, come here this moment voice. Finally, I heard a quiet whimper, like she used to do when she was a puppy and that shuffling noise moving further away from me. I cursed under my breath. Aside from all the creepy fucking box fort in the middle of the night associations going through my mind, all I could think of was my little dog hurt and afraid and how I wanted to get to her before my sisters to see what damage had been done. Things could get hysterical with them real fast if Juliet was in bad shape. So, hero winning out over coward, I got on my hands and knees with the flashlight and went inside. It was eerily quiet in there. That kind of absence of sound quiet that makes you feel like your ears are plugged with cotton, only you can hear your own breath just fine. When I got to the end of the tunnel, I looked right first towards my sister's room, but there was nothing there. When I looked left, I heard a shuffling, and my flashlight beam caught the tail end of something black turning the corner. Juliet. Juliet! I hissed. Juliet, come here, girl! I made my voice more sweet and inviting, but that dog never comes when she's called. I sighed and pushed further, passing by our aborted attempt at a collage on the way. When I got to the end, I turned my flashlight down the long tunnel leading to the closet. The cheap light wasn't strong enough to see to the very end. It simply stopped at a wall of blackness. My resolve wavered here. I must have stayed there on my hands and knees for a full minute before that whimpering noise came to me again and something shuffled further on in the tunnel. It urged me onward. I determinedly made my way towards the closet, each moment expecting my weak flashlight beam to illuminate the red fleece blanket with penguins on it that we had used to cover up the closet entrance to the fort. But I found nothing. Not even an opening. The best way I can describe it is by comparing it to that game we played as children, where you close your eyes, lay on your back on the floor, and raise your arms and legs in the air. Two friends take hold of your hands and feet, and as slowly as possible, lower them to the ground. It feels normal at first, but at some point your brain expects your body to hit the floor, and when it doesn't, when you keep moving more and more downward, you feel as though you're impossibly passing through the floor. That was what it was like being in the tunnel. I kept crawling through, shining my little flashlight on ahead, 
slowly growing more and more disturbed when I didn't reach the ending or see any sign of it. And there was something else nagging me, something about the way the boxes had shaken when whatever was inside moved away from me. Juliet is a little dog, a miniature schnauzer. When she walked through the tunnels, she didn't even have to duck. All you could hear was the soft padding of her feet and her nails scratching against the cardboard. The boxes only shook and moved when something big crawled through them, like me. I don't know how far I went or how long I was in there, but at some point, I actually stopped with a definite, this isn't right feeling. I visualized the fort in my head. By my estimation, I should have been somewhere in the backyard by then, suspended two stories in the air. It had finally dawned on me that I was currently located in a space that couldn't possibly exist, chasing something that was obviously bigger than Juliet. I freaked out and got the fuck out of there, when crawling in the opposite direction didn't seem to lead anywhere but all black endless tunnel. I really lost it and started pulling apart the boxes at the seams, punching my way through and finally finding myself in a tangled mess of blankets and cardboard in the middle of my parents' closet. It must have looked silly, me in a heap on the floor like that, but when I looked up at the walls of the 5 by 10 foot walk-in closet, goosebumps prickled up my back and arms. It was like stepping outside for a jog, then turning around after 10 minutes of running and finding out you hadn't even left your front steps. It just didn't make sense that I had crawled so far in that tunnel but gone nowhere, and followed something that was somehow still inside. To this day, I can't explain it, and I don't even like to think about it. Even worse, I don't like to remember that insistent whimpering that followed me all the way back. Shaking with residual terror, I began dismantling the box fort right then and there. When my sisters emerged from their rooms, bleary-eyed and confused, I just mumbled something about having to take it down before mom got home and continued on with my work. I left just one box. I figured if I was going crazy, I might as well go full out. Thinking of our dog, I left a single box standing in the closet by itself and carried all the rest of them out to the fire pit in our backyard. The next morning I burned them, and my mom was home by the afternoon. That's not quite the end of the story because there was a bit of happiness in store for us later, but I almost wish it was the end. It wasn't much closure for me, what happened afterwards. We ended up finding Juliet a few days later. She was okay. A little erratic and jumpy for a bit, but happy to see us. My family was so overjoyed that nothing could really dampen their spirits, even a little thing like where I found her. It seemed like for everyone but me, all thoughts of the box fort had been completely washed away. The day she came home, I was the only one in the house, washing dishes from a pancake breakfast and letting my mind wander. Suddenly, I became aware of a muffled scratching and yelping sound from somewhere nearby. My heart lifting, I checked the back door, the garage door, and the front door, all to no avail, before I realized the noise was coming from above me. Slowly, I made my way upstairs, following the noise all the way to my parents' room, and finally to their closed closet door. I opened the door, and my little dog bounded out to me, 
jumping and barking for my attention. I got rid of the last box after that, but it may have been too late. Mom came into my room that night, carrying a bundle of socks and underwear and asking me which ones were mine. She still did our laundry sometimes and couldn't tell what belonged to whom. I picked out my things and as she was leaving, she turned around with a grin, chuckling and shaking her head. Whose Halloween costume is that hanging in my closet? It scared me half to death. I put down my book. What costume? You know, the tall black one with the long arms and the white eyes. It's very lifelike. Is it from a movie or something? I only stared at her blankly for a second. Oh, um, yeah, it's mine. I'll move it downstairs. I waited until I heard my mom's footsteps move downstairs and then noiselessly made my way to her room. My fear had an almost hypnotic effect on me that drove me towards the closet. All I knew was that I had to see. The closet door was open, but the light was off. Holding my breath, I flicked it on and surveyed my surroundings. Clothing, boxes, belts, ties, suitcases, blankets, all were hanging or shelved with some order. Then, at the back, an empty space about half a foot wide, where clothes had been pushed aside. A single plastic hanger was swinging back and forth, quickly losing momentum. The window beside me was open. I hope you enjoyed Box Fort, as written by Mallory Edie and performed by Erica Garafa. Thank you for listening and for joining us tonight for this episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. As a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. 
If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.